0: All right, let's take our Bible and our Bible study time this evening to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. So find it just at the end of the Old Testament. I met a new couple this evening from uh, Brazil. Tonight they came in for the ESL class and um, uh, spoke some broken English. I'm glad Mike was there to jump right into Portuguese with them and show them the way uh, to the class. And uh, so several new ones who have attended uh, this evening and um, and so pray, continue to pray for that class and that opportunity for outreach. Zechariah chapter 8, um, have you ever wondered what heaven would be like? Hey, we sing songs about heaven. Um, some of our favorite hymns had uh, "Sweet by and by. Um, and I've got a mansion over the hilltop, some of those songs that I can kind of think of. I was reading this week that things on earth that we value most, such as gold and silver and pearls and precious stone, in heaven, they're God's building materials. I mean, that's like the curbs and the sidewalks are going to be so common. They're going to be you know, made with gold because it's just, I mean, things that we you know, we'll fight and, and, uh, and kill for on this earth in God's heavenly city. Um, he's, he's making curbs out of it and gates and walls and buildings out of it. Um, it it's just interesting as we think about, and I've read, uh, uh, I think it's Randy Alcorn's book, On Heaven, just a great resource. We actually have it as a gift that we give to some of our, our guests just thinking about heaven itself. What about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ? What will, what will the kingdom of heaven look like? Jesus talked much about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom that is to come. He prayed in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom It became a major portion of his preaching. I must go out and preach in the villages and the cities repentance and the coming kingdom. John the Baptist's preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's much talk in the Gospels about the kingdom. Is this just another name for heaven? When we're talking about the term kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, of David, um, is is the eternal heaven and the kingdom of God the same thing? And what do they look like? Scripture tells us what heaven is going to look like. We have some passages. We have some places heaven's going to be like. But the Scripture also tells us what the kingdom is going to look like, and there is a difference. This becomes a key problem issue between a term. What we would use a term in theology or in Um, in seminary and in theological world, dispensationalism and covenant theology. You may know nothing about those terms. They may be new terms to you. But the issue involves how we interpret the Bible, particularly how we interpret the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the throne of David, the Davidic covenant, and the kingdom of the Messiah. Now, I believe that the New Testament writers, the apostles, along with Jesus and John the Baptist, believed the same thing about the kingdom and the Davidic covenant as the Old Testament authors believed about it, prophets and uh, in the Old Testament. The New Testament writers did not come along and reinterpret the Old Testament, taking terminology and covenants and, and terms used in the Old Testament and say, okay, we're going to change the thinking now into being something different. The Old Testament taught that the kingdom would involve a restored Jerusalem with a literal city in the Holy Land on earth where the Messiah will sit on a literal throne in a literal temple, the Messiah. The Messiah from the literal bloodline of David, a Jew from the tribe of Judah in the direct line of David himself. That's why both Luke and Matthew take great pains in recording the family tree of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had to be in the line of David with blood flowing through him and a legal right to be on the throne. And that the twelve tribes of Israel will be a nation and live in the land and dwell in peace with other nations around them. And worship will take place in Jerusalem where people can travel to Jerusalem and see Jesus face to face sitting on a throne with a crown on His head and the nation of Israel living in peace in their own land. That is a literal interpretation of prophecy of the kingdom. And if you don't believe that, then that means that you're not what we would call a dispensationalist. And that's okay. You're welcome here at Calvary Baptist Church. Keep listening to books like Zechariah. And when we get to some sections in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus starts talking about that. But you have to do something to the Old Testament with the New Testament writers to reinterpret prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy differently. If if you're going to... So, when we come to things like the kingdom, the restored Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and the future, it's going to make a big deal. So, your interpretation of the book of Zechariah is going to be very important. It is the battleground for prophecy. And in the book of Zechariah, more than any other book, single book itself, Isaiah um, in, in some large chunks, and a, but I'm talking about in a single book, the book of Zechariah talks more about the future prophecy of the kingdom and the restored Israel as a nation in their land than any other Old Testament book. Our future hope and the future hope of Israel the nation of Israel is found within these promises and did Jesus and John and Peter and John the Baptist and Luke and Matthew and Mark and the writer of Hebrews and and James and Jude and and some of these in the New Testament did they think the same thing from the Old Testament or did they think something different? And I contend they think the same thing. In fact, the heading in my Bible over this chapter, I have a Tom Thompson Chang Bible, over chapter 8, reads this. The restoration of Jerusalem. They are encouraged to the building by God's favor. Unger titles this chapter as Israel's eventual restoration to full millennial blessing. Looking to the future. So what we're going to read or what you read about in chapter 8, we're going to read about the future. What is the kingdom going to look like? Just like I introduced the, the sermon in what will heaven look like? Well, there are passages that we can go to that's going to tell us what heaven looks like. Streets of gold, mansions. Um, pearly gates, some of those terminologies that we find in some different places of Scripture, especially the last portion of the book of Revelation. But there's also some description of what the kingdom is going to look like. And chapter 8 is going to give us some description. Now, just as a review, because it's been a couple weeks, I don't really have time for it, but I want to bring you up to speed. Chapter 7 and 8 are a series of sermons that Zechariah is preaching. It comes, Thus saith the word of the Lord. These sermons took place two years after Zechariah saw his eight visions that we spent weeks on from chapters one through chapter six. God comes to Zechariah by the word of the Lord, not in a vision this time, but by direct revelation to write this down. Chapter seven and eight will be his written message that he's going to give. Remember in chapter 7, there was a question that was brought to Zechariah in the temple by two Babylonian Jewish men, they had Babylonian names, but they were Jewish, who were sent to the priest in the temple from the city of Bethel asking a question in regards to worship Do we keep observing these fasts year after year, or can we stop? Is this tradition? Does it have still meaning? And, and to some extent, the question is being asked almost like they're bored of it anyway. They can't wait for it to be over. What? These fast. Um, God responds. This, thus saith the Lord, occurs like a million times in these two chapters. And I read through them to you just it. They occur, thus saith the Lord, occurs ten times in just chapter 8. So it comes through. Uh, yet God responds first with three questions of his own. Don't you like it when God does that? Responds with a que- uh, 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 of a question with a question. But he does eventually get to his answer at the end of chapter 8. So he goes through all of chapter 7, and, uh, not answering the question, but answering the question. Most of chapter 8, not answering the question, and then finally the last few verses, he answers the question that they officially came to him. You remember the three questions he asked? Why did you fast in the first place? Did you fast for me? And when you eat and drink, do you eat for yourselves? Didn't I tell you that the prophets already talked to you about this issue of worship? Jesus was getting at the heart of why you do what you do. Jesus was getting at the heart of worship. Then God reminds them why they are where they are. They were two-faced. They were double-minded. They were where they were because they had, they, they had come into the temple, said, "Oh Lord, Lord, and, and gave an offering and sang the hymn, but they went back out and they lived exactly the, the way they wanted. And God said, I never intended to, for you to come in and give me empty sacrifices. I wanted your heart and your offerings, not just your offerings. I wanted true religion from the heart that worked itself out in His hands. That's what God expects. So God told them what He required of them in verse 9 and 10. Make fair judgments. Show faithful love. Don't oppress the vulnerable like the poor and the children and the widows. Don't plot evil in your hearts towards other people. This is what godliness looks like. A person who is truly in love with God, in a relationship with God, is going to go out into his neighborhood and he's going to treat people the way God treats them. He's going to be consistent. He's not going to go out and do bad business dealings in in his job. He's not going to go out and steal and lie from his uh, his neighbor. He's not going to go out and envy his neighbor's slaves or his neighbor's wife. He's going to go out and he's going to obey the covenant that God has given, particularly the Ten Commandments. And that's what true religion looks like. That's consistent both in the Old Testament of what God required. Be right in your heart and do right in your hands and put it in that priority in that way. Then in verses 11 and 12, God reminds them that you were stone hearted and you were rebellious and you refused to obey. In verse 13, he said, I cried uh, to you and you wouldn't hear me. So when you cried to me, I wouldn't hear you. They became forsaken. All right. Verse 14, in the end of the chapter, God scattered them like a whirlwind, like a storm, like a windstorm. He just blew them into the nations of this world, and he cast them from the land. In fact, um, I think one other prophet uh, pictures it in the way that the land vomited the people out because of their unbelief and their sin. And the end of chapter 7 basically says, as you look back to your past... Learn from your history. Don't repeat it. Chapter 8 now is going to jump ahead in prophecy, and God is going to change the focus. In chapter 7, look back. Don't repeat the past, what your forefathers did. Chapter 8, God is going to look forward way into the future in the restored kingdom when the Messiah is on the throne, and He's going to show them their hope and he's going to tell them, now, as you look forward to what God is going to do for you, live differently in the present. Live in light of your hope. Learn from the past. That was, that was the first sermon in chapter 7. The second sermon is learn from the future. And live differently in the present in light of what you know about what God is going to do for you. So prophecy should always be taught with moral implication for the present. It should not be mere information. It should draw us knowing what the future is going to be. Studying the book of Revelation, studying the book of Zechariah, studying out the prophecies of the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of the kingdom. That should change our perspective in how we behave and live today in light of what we know that is going to happen in the future. And just let me, just because time is always short with what I have here anyway, look down at verse 17 and 18 of this of, of chapter 8. Here, here's the application. In light of what you know in the future, notice the comparison of what he already said in the first sermon. Verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. This is what God expects for what you know that's going to happen in the future. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of your imagination imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. Love no false oath. For all these things that I hate, saith the Lord." So it's the, really the same conclusion that the first sermon had about their past. This is what God expects true religion to look like. And what He expects so when we look to the future, those of what God is going to do in the future for, for His people, that should make us to come out and live our Christianity, or if we want to say, live our belief in God in a consistent manner that is real and genuine and how that impacts those around us. And so, that, that just draws some point of application for us this evening, and then uh, we'll get into some of the weeds. All right, look down to chapter 8, verse 1. And again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Now, what is going to happen in the first eight verses is God is going to, re, he's going to prophesy about His restoration of, of the city of Jerusalem, of what God is going to do in the future. And He says in verse 2, He is a jealous God. This is consistent with chapter 1 and verse 14 when He says, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great jealousy. This Hebrew word jealous means to be passionate or to be zealous. The root word comes from meaning to glow or to burn. Feinberg, uh, um, one one commentator, indicates that it comes from uh, the color produced in a person's face from deep emotion. That color would be red. When you're mad, you turn red. When you're embarrassed, you turn red. All right, your, your cheeks flush all right that this word has connected to be jealous has connected with a deep emotion on the inside that shows on your face god's face is beat red now is this good or is this bad in a negative passion this would we would say this word would come out as the word envy the same word is used when Rachel was envious towards her sister you remember Leah was having all these children? Rachel was barren. She was envious. That's a negative sense of the word, but it does involve deep passion. We, ob- we have an evil jealousy that involves envy when we want something from somebody else, and it comes deep, and it makes us mad. Right? One commentator stated that this... Uh, overuse of this word would come from the word with with great and very means he is burning with heat of jealousy. Listen to what Joel says, Joel 2.18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Notice whose land is it. Is it Israel's land? No, it's God's land and he's jealous for it. They are his People and he's jealous for them. Earlier in earlier the passage in the book, do you remember what God calls his people in his land? He calls them the apple of his eye. And the nations of this world that mess with Israel mess with the apple of God's eye. And you make him mad when you do that. Why? Because they are his people and he is jealous for them. This reminds me of God's unfailing, burning love for His people. John 13 says this, having loved His own with a perfection love. In other words, God has a burning love for those who are His. Are you a child of God tonight? If you are a child of God, then know this, God has a Positive, burning love for you, just like he does for the nation of Israel. Even when bad things happen, even when you make mistakes, even when you're not faithful to him. Does anybody know about the book of Hosea? God has a burning love for his people, even when they walk away from him. In the Old Testament, God's people were those who were aligned with God's covenant. Israel, the nation of Israel. That was God's people. In the New Testament, his people have been added to. That's now the church. The church doesn't replace Israel, they're added to Israel. That's why Paul uses the word engrafted in, okay? Into by faith, we've now become part of Abraham's seed, even though not by blood, but by faith, the promises. But just because we are in the church age and we're not the nation of Israel, but we are a body, that does not mean that he has promised that the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, have been done away with. God still loves Israel. I'm talking about 2024. Why? Because they are his people and will always be. His people. The same God that is warm and burns with love for his people is the same God whose fire burns with wrath towards those who deny him. And that's what this verse is talking about. He has a great jealousy for those who are his, and he will not forget. He won't forget them even in their rebellion and he won't forget those who choose to treat them the apple of his eye in disrespect and dishonor. Because God has made himself covenant with him. Do they deserve it? Not any more than you do. They never deserved God's love. We answered that question a few weeks ago. But God loved them anyway. And He's chosen to tie His name with them. And He's chosen to tie His covenant with them in the land. Look at verse 3 of this. But thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So the language that is used here is showing God's determination that He will return to Zion. He will bless it. But it's not happened yet. The terminology in this is still future tense. You see, Jerusalem had seen the glory of God depart If you read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, while in Babylon, sees this vision. He sees the glory of God leave the city of Jerusalem, leave the temple, and then Nebuchadnezzar come in and destroy it. God's blessing had been taken away from the nation of Israel, and because of that, they were scattered and disciplined. God's blessing had been taken away because of their unfaithfulness and unbelief. This city was given into the hands of Gentiles, Jewish rulers were no more. A foreign king ruled the Holy Land. What was his name? He's mentioned twice in this book. His name is Darius, a Persian. He's the king. He controls the Holy Land. You say, hold on a second. And some of the Israelites can come back and they build. Yeah, but who controls it? Who controlled it in Jesus' day? It wasn't the Jews. It was Caesar. Through governors such as Pontius Pilate. Who controls it today? That's why we're having that's why they're at war. And they're fighting. Israel has a little portion, they had a smaller portion, now they have a little bigger portion, now they have a little portion, and now they're fighting over this little portion and there's another portion, but they still don't have what they should have, right? In all this passion and everything. But they don't have a king. They don't have a king to rule over them. This verse reminds the Jewish people that one day God will return to that city and He will bless this city once more and Jerusalem of all the cities in the world will be called a city of truth. It will be known for the holy mountain of the Lord of hosts and He will dwell with them. And this word dwell means he will tabernacle, he will live, he will tabernacle. Did you know that Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, in the early portion of the book, he saw the glory of the Lord leave in his day. And he watches the cloud come down. He's got the description of it coming down and moving up the Mount of Olives and going off the Mount of Olives and leave. And he puts over that Ichabod. The glory of God is gone. Did you know in the last portion of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is prophesying about the future time. Did you know he sees a vision of one day in the future that glory will come back? And he describes the glory that comes back and God comes back to the city of Jerusalem and it fills again a new temple and he spends eight chapters telling us what that temple is going to look like and I talked to you about that a few weeks ago. Ezekiel saw the same thing that is being prophesied here by Zechariah. Notice that Jerusalem will be raised as a prominent city of truth and marked by the mountain of the Lord, holiness. Jerusalem will be known not for war. What is Jerusalem known for today? The Dome of the Rock, constant conflict, the Wailing Wall. Two patrollers up and down the streets. The four quarters of the old city, Jerusalem: Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Muslim quarter. Constant conflict on religious days. All eyes that look to the Holy Land. Jerusalem is not, in a description as this fashion, as a city of truth and the mountain of God. God doesn't dwell there. Where does God dwell in this age? Right here. When two or three are gathered in His name, there will I be in their midst. God dwells with the saints right now. But one day in the future, the promise is God will come back to the nation of Israel just like He did in the Old Testament, come back to Jerusalem and in a new temple, and there He will dwell. And I want to tell you this happened as a preview when in John chapter 2, the very presence of God himself walked into the temple walls. Do you remember what he did in John chapter 2? The first time as an adult man in his open ministry, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah himself, walked into the temple, and what did he find? You've made this place a den of thieves, robbers. My house shall be called a house of... Of prayer. He pulled out a whip and he overturned the money changers and he cast everyone out. And the authority came in and said, Who gives you the right to come in and do that? Are you the high priest? And Jesus was zealous for the temple. He came back to the temple at another occasion and came walking in on, the, um, uh, on Palm Sunday and they cried out, Hosanna, here's our Messiah, here's the King. The King's kingdom is coming. God is going to come back and dwell in this place. And just a few days later, that same crowd, that same nation, what did they do to him? Get out of here. If that's what you're going to offer us is a forgiveness of sins, we don't want that. We want liberation from Rome. And the promise of God has said, you can't have liberation from Rome. You can't have peace on earth until you have first peace with God. And to do that, I must die. Jesus offered the kingdom, I believe, to to the nation of Israel. And what did they do to it? They rejected it. And they rejected him and put him on the cross because of it. So they had, in some ways, they had their first chance, but that doesn't mean it nullifies the promises of God. One day, that same Jesus will march into Jerusalem again, not as a lamb, but what will he march in as? As a lion. And he will trample underfoot all of those who have put themselves against, and he will walk into that temple of the Antichrist, destroy it, and we read a few weeks ago, he himself will build the temple, and then sit upon his own throne. There's a future hope. And this chapter is is verse by verse. We're only in verse 3. Verse by verse is just building that up. This is what Jesus is going to do for you, Israel. This is what God is going to do. Look at verse 4. We can probably close with this. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall be yet old men and old women dwelling in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand, for he's very old. That's what the word, very age. And also the streets of the city are going to be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. And thus says the Lord of hosts, it is, if it be marvelous in the eyes of this people in those days, Hebrew word for these is, is future, those days that are going to come. Should it also be marvelous in my eyes, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice the, 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 the promise is sandwiched between the name of God. It's almost like he signed his signature at the beginning, the Lord of hosts, and he signed his signature at the end and said, don't you doubt any of it. This is, My name is tied to this. Doubly. First part, last part. So what, is, what does it look like? There's gonna be old, what is the kingdom gonna look like? You know what the kingdom is gonna look like? There's gonna be a lot of old people there. You say, like, well, what is old people? Well, when someone lives to be well advanced in age, right? That means in times that they they have not gone through cancer they 've not gone through war, famine, pestilence, murder I mean all of these things what what brings the death rate down the results of the curse right war and all of those those things that are going to happen to some extent so what what's going to go on in in the the millennial kingdom, in the kingdom, there's going to be a stay on war and murder and and disease and pestilence and natural disasters. Why? Because just like what happened when Jesus walked Galilee and he walked into Capernaum, he took the hospital beds and the infirmary units and what did he do to them? He told every one of them to get up and walk out. When a storm came on the Sea of Galilee, what did the Messiah do when the storm showed up? Get out of here. Just one word. What is it going to be like when the Son of God in His full power rules and reigns this earth? People are going to live a long time. And play. children are going to have peace and play. It, you know, when you play in the streets, when children play in the streets and old people in their canes, staff, are walking in the streets, what does that tell you? There, it, first of all, it tells me there's no mad drivers. There's no road rage. W- would we in downtown Chicago let our children unattended play in the streets? Would we, can I say this, would we in downtown Jerusalem No, if old people can walk up and down the streets and it's going to be filled, there's going to be people who are very old. We can compare that with other passages of Scripture that said that a child will be 100 years old and that people will live a long life. And children are playing in the streets. That tells us this is going to be a city of peace. Jerusalem, I'm going to tell you, Jerusalem has never been a city of peace but one day it will be. And the description of these people who who have been able to live a long life because there's not been the hardship, there's not been the... The, the, the hurt and the killing and the murder and, and the wars and sending off and, and children are able to play with peace and there's just flourishing with a lot of, a lot of elderly and a, y- a lot of young people from all the spectrums and all the age. It's going to be a place filled with joy. The word playing here has the idea of playing with laughter. The connection of this word is to play with Joy. There's going to be joy in the streets among the children. They don't have anything to fear. Notice this is the very opposite of what we see in our modern cities today and in modern Jerusalem. Zechariah pictures the city of Jerusalem as being a perfect paradise. The model city where everyone wants to come and live. No crime, no war, no murder. People will live long and happy lives. Children will play in the streets with no fear. I want to live there. I want to be there. What a hope for these struggling Jews. What a hope for us struggling Christians. You ever get discouraged sometimes by the, the sights of our city and of our world? I mean, take a look around and just the heavy heart of what is going on. War, political unrest, disease, sickness, un, you know, crime rates, just it it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Get a good glimpse of what God is going to do one day. Keep your eyes on the impossible that God will turn a place of war and fighting into a place of peace and safety. God, and only God, can do that. And he says in the next verse, it's marvelous. It's it's going to be marvelous. And people are going to wonder at what God can do. Uh, This word is connected, just say this, Um, Do you remember when the three angels came to Abraham and Sarah and said that you're going to have a son in your old age? And Sarah laughed. Do you remember what the reply from God was? Is anything too hard for God? The word too hard in the Hebrew is the same word as the word marvelous in verse 6. It means, is anything impossible? Is anything bigger that God can't do? And you marvel at something that is impossible. The same word is used in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. Behold, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? What a blessing that these Jewish people have longed for since that time. Safety, Security, blessing, nothing but the power of God can do that. People will marvel at what God will take. A city that has been filled with war and strife from the beginning is going to be a place where Jesus will rule and reign, and they will have peace and prosperity and joy, and everyone will want to come and live there. Father, I pray as we close tonight, uh, thank you for what you will do. And in light of what you will do, would that change how we behave and how we treat one another? Would we live in light of what we know? Um, thank you for doing the impossible. And it is, a, it, it is no, no uh, country, no president, no league, no peace agreement has ever been able to accomplish the scene that we read about in Zechariah 8. It won't. It'll only happen when Jesus Himself steps into this broken world and fixes it, and rules and reigns in quick, fierce judgment. And um, Lord, thank you that that one day that you will change this evil and wicked world. And it's going to take. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a great time of tribulation to to get it to that point and to get your people to that point where they'll believe you. And uh, thank you that you have rescued us from that wrath. And thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you. Be encouraged tonight.